You know, one of the things that we try and do periodically is, is listen to each other's stories, to be a part of, of sharing life and listen to the things that God is doing in our hearts. And, and, and so I've invited someone to come share this morning who I think has got an incredible story to tell. Um, we've prayed for this person. We've spent time with this person. We have, have watched this person grow and, and not only be part of our community, but, but go through some personal struggle that she's going to share with you um, this morning. And so I'm very excited that Angie Gavin's going to come and share her story a little bit with us this morning as part of our community life and what it means to live together in community. So Angie, if you want to come up here and share your story with us, that would be fantastic. Hi. Um, I don't know if you all remember, but... Uh, the beginning of this year, I asked for a prayer request for my dad. He um, had a brain bleed, and I can't see. <laughs> he had a brain bleed, and um, he went into the hospital and had a stroke. He had four brain surgeries in four days, and he lost 70% of his right brain. Anyway, so um, he uh, went to a coma for 38 days, and he had a 1% chance of coming out of that coma, but he did. After 38 days, he came out of that coma, and I said, well, Dad, it's 2010, because <laughs> he had missed all that. It happened on December 23rd of last year. Anyway, so um, I said, it's 2010, and here's what's gone on. You've had a brain bleed, and you've been in a coma, and, and all of that. And he was fine. He, he, he just nodded, and, and he was okay. And I said, but you know what's really cool, Dad, is that God is using your story. He's using your life to touch other people. And tears came to his eyes, and I was like, yep, that's my dad. That's what mattered to him. Those are the priorities that he had. Not the inconvenience on his body. I'm sure that that mattered to a certain extent. But the fact that he was able to, you know, even through his own struggle and through his own life um, in that type of situation, that God was able to use it. And then uh, for nine months he lived after, the, well, for nine months total, he went into the hospital on December 23rd and died on September 23rd. Um, of this year. Anyway, so he, um, we saw him go through ups and downs. He went into rehab, you know, because he had lost a lot of the physical ability. And we didn't know, you know, if he was going to make it or not forever. And, um, you know, he had a feeding tube and a trach and, and things like that. So he wasn't living a normal life. He could talk just a little bit. Um, and then he, he came down with pneumonia and, and um, aspirated pneumonia and um, septic shock. Technically, he actually beat those things, but it just left him very, very weak. And he was very prone to getting illnesses and sickness and infections because he was always laying down. Well, anyway, so um, he, a week before he died, he, so he was on his deathbed. They had sent him to hospice. And, you know, he was in constant pain. They were giving him morphine every hour. Um, my mom said to him, you know, honey, it doesn't look good, but God is still good. And dad looked at her, and he hadn't smiled, he hadn't talked in a few weeks because he was in such pain. But after mom said that, he said all the time. So God is still good all the time, no matter what, no matter what the circumstance, even though he was on his deathbed, and even though he was in such pain and suffering. Well, then um, they called us, and we went up there. Um, they said, okay, it looks like he's going to pass this morning. And my mom and I went up there. And um, we, we just, we walked in the room and he was breathing really loud and, and uh, really rapidly and we started talking to him and it slowed down and he relaxed. And I prayed with him and then we got out the Baptist hymnal because I grew up Southern Baptist and he loved the Baptist hymnal and we had been singing with him over the last few months and he'd sing every now and then with us. Um, anyway, so, so we sang with him a few songs and then we just talked to him, told him we were going to miss him and how he's going to be okay. 
And then he, you know, and like I said, this, this is actually when he's about to die. So for the last two weeks, he hadn't smiled or anything because he was in pain all the time. Anyway, so he looked up and he smiled and he took one last breath and he was gone. And it was so amazing to see um, that he, you know, he saw God or he saw angels or he saw maybe the family who had gone before and just to know that he was happy again. But what that taught me throughout that whole situation was how much he loved uh, our family and how he was determined to not give up. And also, what an impact he made. My dad was very humble and very quiet. Um, but how a life, no matter if you're outgoing and a person who's going to be out there speaking, or if maybe you're a little bit more timid or shy, like you say, <laughs> um, you know, God can use you. And that's what's amazing is that how God used my dad, even when he was sick, we saw people come back to church. There was a couple who, because they heard of my dad's story, came back to church after seven years of not darkening the church doors. And now they're serving in the church at my parents' home church. And I mean, it's just amazing to see how God can use uh, a life and he can use every single one of us. One thing that he showed me was that he is in charge. God is in charge of every breath you take, every heartbeat you have, every brain function you have. And he determines when your mission is over. And I know, even though it hurts, especially this time of year that dad's not with us, I know that he completed his mission and he did what he was supposed to do. And if you're still living right now and your heart is beating and you are breathing, there is a reason why you're here and there is a reason why you're on this earth to help somebody else, to minister in some way. I don't know what that is. And I'm still figuring it out for myself where God is using me. But that's what I love that I learned through my dad's story. And my respect for my father increased so much, you know, just to see somebody who was determined and wanted to be there for his family. And he didn't want to die. He definitely was upset about that. But he knew that he completed his mission. And I know that he felt God's presence with him every step of the way. The fact that he would sing those hymns with us, you know, he, he still loved God, even in his suffering. And not that my dad is a martyr or something like that, but I feel like my dad is the type that he would say, if I have to suffer so that someone will come to, come to, to know Christ, I'll do it. And one person at his funeral did come to know Christ. And that's it. Unbelievable. Thank you. You know, I just find it so remarkable. I mean, you know, we come to church every single Sunday and we, we grab coffee and we, we have donuts and, and it's really easy to get wrapped up in the fact that this is some kind of, maybe some just some kind of event that we come to where we sing and maybe we like the song, maybe we don't, maybe the music's too loud, maybe it's not. And, and we forget that we, we cross and intersect lives and that part of what we're called to as a community is living in this this relational place that says, I want to know your story. I want to know what God is doing in you, and I want you to know what he's doing in me. I mean, the church experience is really meant to be lived in community. The early church was, was designed as a community of believers that shared life. And, and we had been praying for Angie and Joel and for their family. We had been praying for her father. And, and we had walked through this process with them from afar. And I just find it so powerful that she'd be willing to come up here and stand and say, you know what? I want to just share with you what God did in me through that circumstance. And, and it reminds us that we're just a bunch of people that have, a, have lives and stories that, that can intersect with one another in really unique ways if we'll actually live open and transparent and let the community of God, the followers of Christ, love and care for and nurture each other. You know, some of you may have very similar experiences 
um, with Angie, that you might be able to share hearts and lives together now. But what an unbelievable testimony of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. And I guarantee you in her life, there are still a whole lot of unanswered questions. We've got a lot of things we're going to ask the Lord. Um, but to see God's hand move through there, such a powerful witness to my own heart, reminding me that, man, God is, is moving and he's at work. And so maybe just this morning, you needed to, to hear a little bit uh, echoed about God's faithfulness. Angie, thank you for sharing your story with us. You know, we've been spending the past few weeks exploring these pieces of the Advent conspiracy. We, we looked week one about what it might look like to truly worship fully. And we, we look at the shepherds and how worship started. The worship of Jesus started some 2,000 years ago. And we talked about the explosion that was happening in that Middle Eastern night sky when the angels appeared before the shepherds and the, the sort of collision of heaven and earth that the incarnation was. And then last week we talked about the idea of spending less, but not spending less to, to accrue more, but actually spending less, consuming less, to invest more relationally. We talked about creating time and space in our lives for people and enjoying those moments and shifting our priorities. Well, this week we're looking at that third piece, which is giving more. And, and I'm, I'm sure you're sitting out here saying, great, I know what this one's about. Trev's going to get up there and he's going to tell us to give more money, and, and we're going to do that. And, 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 you know, the thing is, you guys know me better than that. This, this principle is not about giving more dollars. I mean, we know that as followers of Christ, we're not called to accrue wealth here on earth, but shepherd and steward God's resources so that we could reflect his love to the world. You do not need me to tell you to give more. And this week is not a plea to give more to this community. I don't care if you give us a dollar. I want us to think differently about what giving more might mean because what I truly believe this picture of giving is about is what if you and I took the call of Christ seriously and actually gave our lives away? That giving more might come in the framework of giving myself away. And that's what we're going to be this morning. We're going to explore together what it might look like if you and I took this call seriously. And not just during Advent, but maybe as a place to start about giving our hearts and our entire lives away for the cause of Christ. We're going to be in the book of Luke, so if you've got a Bible, we actually have some new ones, so um, enjoy those. If you need one, take it. If you want one to match your other one, take it too. Give it away. Um, they're there. Um, if you don't own one, please, please take it, and uh, we'd love for you to have it. But we're in the, be in the book of Luke chapter 9 this morning as we explore these principles together. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse-ish, how about 18? Does that sound good? All right. Let's pray before we open God's word together. Lord, we thank you for the powerful testimonies of Bruce and Angie. Father, for their willingness to get up and share their story about your faithfulness and, and their stories about what it means to truly trust you. God, in the face of uncertainty or in the face of, of paradigm-shifting realities, to truly trust you. Lord, we pray that just for a moment you might carve out time in our hearts, that we could come face-to-face -face with your word this morning and have an encounter with you that would that would really change us forever. That God, we get accustomed to hearing Christmas messages and, and sermons and, and somehow the idea of this incarnational birth of Christ becomes, will become somewhat trivialized or commercialized. And God, I pray that you would shake that out of us this morning. That you would show us the amazing things that have transpired and what you call us to. 
And that, God, you don't call us to think about just giving more, but to actually give our lives away. So, Lord, prepare us to have an encounter with your word. Take just a moment right where you sit and just ask God to to carve out some space and time in your heart that he would intersect his holy truth with your heart. That, God, you would intersect your truth with my heart. Just pray that. Pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know their name. Just pray that God would move in their life and in their hearts, that he would do something powerful in them this morning. Lord, we love you. We give you all praise and honor and ask that you would be glorified. Father, we pray that you would encounter our hearts. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so teach us and instruct us, convict us and empower us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Book of Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. And we'll go down through about 25 or so. But let's uh, read this word of the Lord together. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and still others that you're one of the prophets from a long time ago that's come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And then he said to them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his very self? You know, the picture here is Jesus withdrawing in private to go pray, just him and his disciples. And we kind of alluded to this last week, that that time alone was really hard for Jesus. He couldn't just say, I'm just going to be alone today. People showed up in droves all the time. They wanted to be around him and with him. And so Jesus didn't get much alone time. So here we have one of those unique moments where Jesus is spending some time privately in prayer with just the disciples. So it's just the 12 and Jesus. And he looks at him and he says, who is everybody saying that I, that I am? What are they actually saying about me? Because, you know, the disciples would have heard. They'd have heard the rumors. And everyone's trying to figure out who this Jesus was. I mean, he was doing remarkable things. He was teaching unbelievable truths. And, and there were miracles that were happening. And demons were being cast out. And people were being fed. And the blind were being able to see. And the lame were walking. And, and what were people saying? You know, so Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, you know, I mean, some say that you're John the Baptist. I mean, because John the Baptist was one of those guys out in the wilderness and kind of doing strange things and eating locusts and baptizing people. And so some just thought Jesus and John the Baptist were like one and the same. And then he said, well, some said, you're Elijah, because Elijah was supposed to come back, because he never really died, and so he's supposed to come back, and so maybe he was Elijah come again, and then they said, well, well, some say that you're one of the prophets from old who's come back to life. In other words, nobody really knew. They knew that there was something spectacular about Jesus, but no one could really put their finger on it. 
So they go through all these things, and Jesus looks at him. He says, okay, but, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter immediately says, you are the Christ of God. Or if it's Matthew records, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody. And then he explains to them some things that are getting ready to unfold, that he's about to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and suffer and be handed over and killed and ultimately raised to life. And then he says this, he looks at him, he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, these verses are, are absolutely remarkable. And they're remarkable for a couple of reasons. One, this is the first time we really get to see the disciples kind of getting it. Kind of getting a picture, maybe, of just who Jesus is. And, and they don't quite understand all the things that are going to unfold. Certainly not. But Peter says, you are the Christ. They're also remarkable because this is the first time we really see Jesus articulate all the things that are going to happen. That he's saying, I'm going to be rejected by religious leaders. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed and suffered and ultimately raised to life. But really the reason that I think these verses are absolutely so remarkable is because I believe that this is the most important question ever asked. In the history of question asking, there is no more important question ever asked than the one that Jesus asked the disciples. And I truly believe that there's no more important question that you and I have to deal with than the question that Jesus asks the disciples. And that is this, who do you say that I am? Now what you and I do with that question is of the utmost importance. Because not only does it have earthly implications, it has eternal implications. That what we do with the person of Jesus Christ, what we think about who Jesus is, changes our lives eternally. It certainly changed the lives of the disciples. And Peter's response saying, you are the Christ, literally changed his life from how he would live from that point on. Because saying that Jesus was the Messiah was not some kind of trendy, cool answer. It was actually the signing of your own death certificate. The moment that you acknowledge that this person, this Jesus, this physical human that stood right here was the son of the living God, it was blasphemy, punishable by death. At the very least, these guys would be called lunatics and radicals and extremists. But basically, by, by Peter saying, you are the Messiah, he's signing his own death certificate. You've got to understand that there's power behind this notion. Because it's one thing to simply say that Jesus is the Messiah. It's another thing of how, in terms of how that translates and impacts our lives. Certainly Peter's kind of confession of who Christ is had implications that would change his life forever. But I mean, what do you really do with that question? I mean, the question really, who do you say Jesus is? I mean, is he a moral teacher? Is he sort of a, a symbol of your religious experience? Is he somebody that you, you pray to? Is he someone that shows up in the Advent season in your life and, and some images of a young child? Because what we think about Jesus should translate to how we live our lives. And that we can't take that question lightly. Because not only does it have earthly implications for how you and I live, it has the utmost and most important eternal implications. Because the Bible's very clear that it makes a huge difference 
what we believe about Jesus. That if we believe Jesus is just some moral teacher, it's vastly a different response than if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, Rescuer, and Savior. You know, I started thinking a lot about this text in terms of what it really means to give our lives away. Because I really find it remarkable. At this point in time, no one has said, Jesus, you are the Son of God. So you know what Jesus says in response to Peter's claim? After he kind of rebukes them and tells them not to say anything and tells them keep that a secret and all these things are going to happen, you know what he says to them? He says, listen to me. It says that he turns to all of them. And he says, if you were going to come after me, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. You see, what, what we believe about Jesus has to cross and intersect and impact our lives. We can't just be people that say, yes, I believe Jesus is, is God's son, because I don't want to take anything for granted, but for the most part, most of us in here would echo G- Peter's claim about Christ. We'd be okay with that. We'd say, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe he's God's son. I mean, I'm, I'm here in church, and Trump talks about Jesus all the time. And so, you know, that, that kind of resonates with me on some level, or at least I don't find it so ridiculously kind of offensive that I'd come back. So, so for the most part, I'm really okay with that statement. But does it really impact and intersect with your lives? Because if we look at the, the words of Christ... The call is to come and give our lives. That once we proclaim Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God, the call then is to get rid of my life. Jesus looks at him and he says, listen to this. If you will come after me, Peter, if you really believe what you just said, if you really believe that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the anointed one, the Savior, rescuer, if you believe that, you are going to have to give your life away. In other words, he's saying, listen, the 12 of you as you stand here, if you are going to come after me, there's going to be a severe implication on your life. It is not enough, Peter, to stand here and just say what you believe. Because if you really will follow me, it will cost you everything. And there's three things that jump out in that little, that little first verse there that I think are really significant. The first thing he tells the disciples, he says, you have to deny yourself. Literally following Christ means that I lay down my desires, I lay down my agenda, and I say, God, I desire what you desire. That I take my own selfish motives and my selfish ways, and I say, I don't want those. I choose to follow you, and I will deny myself, which means all the things that I think I want, that I think are good for me, the career path that I've chosen, the way that I've laid out my family, my retirement plan, All of my things, the things that I think relationally protect me, the way that I look at relationships and life, all the things that serve me. And you know we have them, and we lay all those things out before the Lord. And as long as God's plans fit within ours, then we are all in. But the moment God's plans impact ours, then all of a sudden we have to pray about it, right? But Jesus is saying, if you will come after me, you've got to deny your self which means god i want your agenda jesus i choose your agenda following you means what you want not what i want he looks at him and he says you have to take up your cross daily 
So if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself and take up your, da- your, your cross daily. Now, I've heard a lot of, of sermons or ideas on what it means to take up your cross. Let me explain it one thing really clearly of what this statement doesn't mean. This is not a symbolic metaphor for carrying a burden. In our culture, we've turned that statement, carry my cross, as, as sort of a symbolic statement about a burden that we have to carry, like maybe I have a thankless job, or I've got a physical illness, or I have a hard relationship. You know, and that's just the cross I have to bear. That's just the burden I have to carry. The truth is, that's not what Jesus meant at all. In that time period, there was one use for the cross, and that was as an instrument of horrific and unimaginable death. That's what the disciples would have known it as. That's what anyone in that first century would have known it as, a tool of the Romans to literally kill people in the most humiliating and awfully painful way possible. The cross was an instrument of death. Now, in our culture today, we've turned the idea of the cross, rightly so, into a symbol of of grace and love and sacrifice. Because we know what Christ did on it and we know what the result was. But in those days, Jesus had yet to go to the cross. And the only thing the cross was known for was a tool of execution. And when Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, You will have to take up your cross daily and follow me. You know what he's saying? He's essentially saying that you've got to come to a place where you are willing to die for me. You know, the Romans made you carry your instrument of death. It's the reason we see Jesus marching through the streets up to Golgotha carrying his own cross because it was humiliating. So they'd strap that cross beam to your back and you would walk to the place where you would die. The humiliation of having to even carry your own death instrument. Do you see what Jesus is saying to the disciples? He's saying that if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to be willing to die. Every single day. Total surrender, total obedience, total dependence. This isn't a feel-good verse that says, I'm going to take up my cross daily and kind of get a little bit more humble and, and bear the burdens that I have to and not complain about them. Are you kidding me? This is a verse that says, are you willing to totally surrender your life and come to a place where you deny yourself so strongly and so deeply that you say, Jesus, I will walk the path that you walked, even if it costs me everything. We have to deny ourselves and come to a place where we're willing to say, Jesus, I surrender all of me to who you are. And Luke says, daily. In other words, it wasn't that one time in the seventh grade when we gave our life to Christ at camp and we said, we say every single day we wake up and we say, Jesus, today I'll die for you. And I'm not simply talking about some kind of physical death because most of us really won't face that. I'm talking about a spiritual and an emotional death that says I am dying to myself And I want to live in you. And then Jesus looks at them all and he says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. In other words, I'm not sending you out there alone. You can model my life. And Jesus, of course, was a perfect example of what it means to surrender our lives, to follow in complete and total obedience. It's on everything that we do. Our entire approach to life as a community is is love God, love people, follow Jesus. It's not an accident or because that sounds really kind of neat and super Christian. It's on there because if we're really as a community to follow Christ, it means we're willing to lay down everything that we are 
and say, God, your agenda, not my agenda. I mean, these are radical verses. We often apply them as sort of feel good, I got to follow, but I'm talking about laying down all that I am. So listen to how he, uh, he finishes this up. He says, if you're kind of in a place where you're willing to do those things, he says, look in verse 24, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his very self? You want to talk about radical paradigm shifting teaching? This was the, the Jesus that taught, if you want to save your life, lose it. Give it away. That's how we pro, pro, you know, make our lives deeper and richer. That's how we save our lives, by literally giving them away, dying to ourselves. But if we want to save our life, if we want to be about the protection of ourselves, if we want to be about our agendas, we will lose it. Notice who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the disciples. He's not talking to a, a bunch of non-believers. He's talking about people that are walking with him. He's saying, even you have got to come to a place where you're, your goal is not the self-preservation of who you are. Our goal as believers cannot to be to preserve ourselves. Trev at all costs. You know, we do this as, as churches all the time. We think about our own self-preservation at all costs. You know, the reality is, is that we should be willing to die. And if tomorrow Jesus calls us to dissolve this community, we would say, God, your agenda, not my agenda. And God, if you call me to give my life away, I will. But I want you to think about this for a minute. Because I really believe that most of us, including myself, don't really, we don't really do battle with these verses because if we really take seriously what jesus has just said that we are called to to deny ourselves to take up our cross and follow him to to lose our lives for the sake of christ if we really believe that it should alter the way that we live so what we say about the person of jesus christ jesus i believe that you are savior messiah redeemer anointed one son of the living god should change the way i live if i can call jesus my lord and it doesn't change my life i don't believe anything about jesus but you know what guys this is why following christ is so radically unpopular because we want to follow a god of convenience we want to follow a God that, that when it works for me, I'm in. And so we want to sacrifice just enough to not actually have to impact my life or the life of the people around me. I want to give just enough to where, out of my abundance, where it doesn't actually cost me anything. And it certainly isn't painful, right? I want to serve just enough to not have my faith be labeled radical or extreme or literal, I really, when it comes to the Bible, I want to read those verses that apply and make me feel good. But when I come in contact with those verses that are painful or hard, I call them out of context or a little old. Or I find a way to not have to apply them to my life. I mean, the reality is, is that if we come face to face and really say that we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Messiah, is Redeemer, is the Son of the living God, it should change our lives following jesus is not a life of convenience it is a life of self-denial 
that says, God, I want what you want. Now, now I know that several of you are going, okay, that's fine in everything. I hear that, and it seems to be echoed through a lot of the things that you say. But, Trev, let's be honest. How do I really do that? I mean, how do I really begin to, to give more and give my life away? You know, I really think that dealing with that principle means dealing with one really important truth. Very simple, but very important truth, and that's this, that my life and everything I have belongs to the Lord. Now think about that for a moment. My life and everything that I have belongs to the Lord. I mean, if you really deal with that statement, if you really come to grips with the fact that my children, my husband, my wife, my house, my car, my bank account, my food, my stuff, that it all belongs to the Lord. My very life is His. He gave it to me, and, it, and it's his. And it's no longer mine, then maybe I'm willing to release my control of it. Because see, for most of us, it really is about control. But control is an illusion. There's no such thing. If you can deal with that statement, God, my life and everything I have is yours, then you will find yourself at a place where sacrificially giving becomes not only a response of obedience, but becomes an overwhelming sense of joy. Because now you just become a distributor of God's stuff. I've got a house. Come over. I've got a car. Get a ride. I've got extra resources. I have resources that God gave me that I don't even know what to do with. You're welcome to them. I'm not ultimately in control of how my kids end up. I turn them over to the Lord and I do the best that I can. God, they are yours and I trust you with them. See, the reality of giving more means that I'm shepherding and stewarding the things that God has given me, which are ultimately his. Greed and selfishness comes from the place that we believe stuff and my life is mine. When I believe that my life is mine, and I deserve happiness, and I deserve things, and I deserve whatever it is, I will never be able to live sacrificially. When I believe that the stuff that I have is mine, it's my car, it's my house, it's my world, I will never be able to live in a place where I can sacrifice. The first step to giving your life away, giving more, means coming to grips with that your life and your stuff belongs to the Lord. So then if God calls you to part with it, it's his anyway. I didn't lose anything. God gave it to me. You see the difference in the way of thinking that this is. So in short, wrapping all this up, I just want you to understand this. What you do with the question of who is Jesus Christ, who do you say that I am, should translate and impact your life and how you live. And that maybe giving more is really about giving your life away. And not just giving out of the abundance, but saying, God, everything that I am and have is yours. So just tell me how you want me to distribute it. Tell me how you want me to bless people with it. And it doesn't mean necessarily you have to give it all away, but maybe I welcome everybody into it. See, as a community, our challenge is not just to do this over three weeks, that we might begin to really live this way. And that if we can stand here and sing and say, Jesus, Messiah, Savior, Son of God, and that doesn't impact my life, those are hollow words. 
And that's exactly what Jesus was telling the disciples. If you're going to call me the Son of God, if you're going to call me Messiah, it's going to cost you your life. Total surrender, total, total obedience, and overwhelming joy. As we prepare to close in worship, let's just go before the Lord and ask him to help us loosen our grip on things. Loosen that death grip that we have grabbed our bank accounts with, that death grip that we have grabbed our own lives with, that death grip that we have grabbed our plans with, our retirement structure, our children with, our our, our perfect picture of life with. And loosen that grip and begin to say this thing together, God, my life and everything I have is yours. God, my life and everything I have is yours. Let's pray.